If you would again, uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 25. And today we'll be reading verses 19 through 34. Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 19. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were given, or were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name is called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him, and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask, O God, that you would give us ears to hear as the word is preached. Be, be with this your servant. We pray that um, as the word is explained, exposited, we would uh, understand it. And may we apply it rightly to our lives. That your name is glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, there is a phrase that's recorded in the scriptures which sounds peculiar to our ears. A phrase which is recorded in Malachi and then again repeated in Romans. In fact, we just read it in Romans chapter 9. And it is also the title, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, although this phrase is not recorded here in Genesis, the concept is present in God's sovereign choice of the younger twin over the older 
the sovereignty of God and divine election, God's predestining some to everlasting life, while the non-elect are punished for their sins, strikes many as unfair and arbitrary. And there are many who will deny the doctrine and claim that men are free to choose God or not. And the scriptures, though, paint a very different picture. The one that is not only just and right, because God is always just and right and good, but also because it displays the awesome love and care of God and gives the believer greater hope. For we know that we are undeserving wretches. The Lord in His providence uses the actions of men, though, to accomplish His will. God had predestined Jacob to be the son of promise. Though he was the secondborn. Though he was a scoundrel. God accomplished his will through the means of Esau and Jacob's actions, using their personalities, even their sins. God elects some to everlasting life, and this election actually gives hope. In one sense, the purpose of God here is clear. This is another of that stop on the road to the coming of the Messiah and his death and resurrection. But it's often with the purposes of God in various places. There are things, some things that are beyond our understanding. And even here, as one commentator puts it, quote, neither fairness, divine promise, nor pedagogical purpose adequately explains this interversion, this inversion rather, of the place of the firstborn, end quote. The only thing that we can explain that can explain the purpose of Jacob surpassing Esau is the divine grace and mercy of the triune God. You see, without grace and mercy from God, there would only be the law and justice and no hope. Divine election, though, then gives the Christian hope for God's mercy, for he actively bestows it on those he chooses to bestow it upon. As the word of God states, I will have mercy in whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion in whom I have compassion. And sometimes God surprises us, doesn't he? God surprises us by bestowing his grace and mercy upon those who least deserve it. And yet, why are we surprised? Isn't that the very definition of mercy and grace? Isn't that true for you and I? that we have bestowed His mercy and grace if you're in Christ. Between the two sons of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob seems the least worthy. But the divine promises of God are not bestowed on the worthy, but on those whom God has chosen to show His compassion and loving kindness. And so with all this in mind, we turn our attention into our passage And we're picking up in in chapter 25 here in verse 19. And again, if you've been uh, with us through this series, we we pick up on on this familiar formula, the toldoth. These are the generations of. That's sort of a marker that tells us, oh, there's a sort of a new section in Genesis we're looking at. These are the generations of. Which is to say, this is the account of the descendants of Isaac, the son of Abraham. 
And so with this introduction, uh, we actually see that the account of Isaac himself is blanked. Although he's the active patriarch, you'll notice that the focus of the narrative is not on Isaac, it's actually on Jacob. Now we might ask, why is this? Why is Isaac seemingly being passed over? We're not getting a lot of information about him. Isaac's story is seen through the lens of Abraham before him and then in Jacob after him. Now Isaac had a miraculous beginning in his birth and his gaining a wife. But in terms of Isaac, by the end it seems that he becomes stubborn and sedentary. He doesn't lead his family well. It doesn't appear that he does. He doesn't lead them through the great difficulties. And in some sense, he refuses to submit to God's plan, particularly as it relates to Esau and Jacob. What we will find is an old man whose tongue craves the wild game of his oldest son, but whose eyes refuse to see God's leading. And so Isaac's story is sort of truncated. We don't don't get a lot more about him. He had a great start, but his end will not find him strong. And so the focus of Moses in writing Genesis becomes Jacob. Jacob, who has conflict. Conflict with his brother, even in the womb. But who was graciously uh, elected by God. It was God's choice to inherit the promises made to Abraham. Now, the first thing we can notice concerning the twin children of Isaac and Rebekah is that they prayed for them. Isaac and Rebekah prayed for their sons. Like Sarah before her, Rebekah was barren. The promise of God was undoubtedly known to both Isaac and Rebekah. And so, Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, that she would not remain barren. Now, Rebekah's own inquiry of the Lord in verse 22, then, is the counterpart to Isaac's prayer. But here, Isaac is following in his father's example. Remember, Abraham had prayed for the barren woman, the barren women in the house of Abimelech. And so here, in the case of Isaac and Rebekah, uh, they don't resort to, uh, to getting a concubine like Abraham and Sarah had done. But they trust in the Lord to act and to move in the situation. Now, notice again, too, this theme of barrenness. God was pleased for the chosen women who would carry on the covenant promise to start out as barren, unable to produce children. And once again, it will take a supernatural act of God to bring this child of promise about. And so what is made clear is that it is God who brings the promises to pass. It is the Lord who is sovereign over all of these matters. This is true for birth. This is true for the second birth. Far from being anxious about this barrenness, Isaac and Rebekah were to rest in God's sovereign grace. And so what they do is they pray. Pray for the Lord to bring this about. And we see the Lord answers this prayer. And he brings about twins, twin boys in the womb of their mother who struggle with one another in the womb. What an answer to prayer. The language here uh, used actually suggests violent conflict 
So some of you moms who've had babies, can you imagine a violent conflict in your womb? This is what Rebecca experienced. These twin boys fought fiercely, such that Rebecca wondered if they were going to kill her. And so she asks, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? She had prayed, the Lord had answered the prayer, but now she's wondering, are these boys going to kill me? She interprets this violent jostling within her as an omen of animosity. If this is the way it's going to be between these two children, then what is the point of being pregnant? This is in one sense what she's asking. She wonders, will I survive this ordeal? The struggle for supremacy between Jacob and Esau in the womb, coupled with the Lord's sovereign choice, is a fitting introduction to the rivalry which will exist between these two brothers, Esau and Jacob. So the Lord answers the inquiry of Rebekah. In her womb were two nations. Look at verse 23. In her womb are two nations. Now notice that the descendants of these two boys are substituted. That's what's being referred to. From these two, from these twins, will come about two nations. Israel and Edom. Two separate, distinct nations. The parallelism of the first line emphasizes the division of the two. Just as the people of the earth listed in the table of nations are dispersed after the Tower of Babel, just as Lot and Abraham are divided against one another, so too will Israel and Edom. One will be stronger than the other. The older brother will serve the younger The idea that the younger will hold sway over his older brother was a complete departure from what was culturally normative. It is here that we begin to see God's sovereign uh, work of election. The Apostle Paul, uh, writing in Romans chapter 9, explains the significance of this passage. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So the oracle given here looks far beyond just these two boys. It's looking towards their descendants. And it's even looking beyond that. It's looking beyond just those descendants to those nations to an illustration of God's divine election. By the decree of God and for His glory, the Westminster Confession states, some men have been predestined unto eternal life, others and others foreordained to everlasting death. God has done this from all eternity by His most wise and holy counsel, by His own free will. And so doing God is neither the author of sin nor is violence done to the will of men. The Apostle Paul states in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
the emergence of Jacob as the son of promise, and the regression of the older brother Esau was by God's divine decree before the foundation of the world and for his own glory, so that he may demonstrate through vessels of mercy the riches of his glorious grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the account of Jacob and Esau as is stated in various other places of Scripture, were given for our instruction and for our hope. We are to know that God is God. He is sovereign. He rules and overrules as He sees fit, according to His own will. There's nothing that's on accident with God. There's nothing... God's not surprised by things. There's nothing that goes on and says, well, God, God says, well, I, well, I didn't know that was going to happen. No. Even you being here today is according to God's will. And so these twins in the womb of Rebecca, they fight fiercely. Because they're two nations which will be divided And when the time came for them to be born, we read that the first one came out red. He was all red, with hair, all over his body like a garment. And so he was called Esau. Now this is a wordplay on his descendants. The Edomites sound like the Hebrew word for reddish. And Esau shares sounds with the word for hairy, Sa'ar, which also is the, the name of the place where they lived, Mount Seir. The second born brother comes out holding on to Esau's heel. It's like they've been fighting. And, you know, I'm not just going to let you get out of here. And he holds on to him. And so he's called Jacob. Again, this is a wordplay on the Hebrew word for heel. As a verb, his name means grasps the heel. The word heel can be used metaphorically for a trusted friend who deceives. Although it, it probably is given, as is given, it probably didn't have that negative connotation. But as a shorten, shortening of the phrase, may Yahweh protect. The idea being the protection relates to being close to the heel. And so what we have here is a reddish, hairy garment boy and the heel grabber. And in both cases, their names become something of an oracle. It's anticipating their later actions as Esau will be deceived into selling his birthright with red lentil stew from Jacob, who will then supplant his brother. The sequence here ends with a chronological note. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. This, of course, was much younger than Abraham was even when Ishmael was born, let alone Isaac. Isaac waited 20 years for the birth of his sons. But again, the Lord shows his faithfulness towards his promises. Since uh, Abraham died when they were 15, Esau and Jacob surely knew their grandfather. Uh, Undoubtedly, they heard of the Lord's promises from his very lips. Perhaps Abraham brought these two boys onto his knee and pointed to the skies, recalling the Lord's promises that, that through, through there would be offspring which number more than the sky, stars of the sky. Surely these two knew these promises. 
Well, the faith was shared with them, both Esau and with Jacob. They were going to need to live out that faith themselves. This is, by the way, true of all of our covenant children, isn't it? They may be children of uh, covenant children as they grow up in, in Christian homes, but they themselves need to live out the faith too. They, they can't just ride in on the coattails of parents. It doesn't work that way. They need to live out the faith. And so Genesis gives us a taste of the twins' characters and their interests. Esau is described as a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field. Now this is, of course, somewhat ironic because later he will be seen to be an unsuccessful hunter. Although hunting is popular here in the Ozarks, being a hunter is not a favorable description by biblical standards. He's depicted as an unrefined brute of a man who is irreverent towards his birthright and is no match for his wily brother. Jacob, in contrast, is described as a quiet man, dwelling in tents, Now, a better translation may be civilized. He was civilized. He was refined. He was cultured. Uh, The Hebrew word in other places speaks of one who is perfect or complete, uh, finished. You know, it used to be, you know, know, like in the 19th century, you know, people go to finishing school, right? That's where they, they become civilized and cultured. Now, this description may speak of his having been cultured. The same cannot be said of his moral behavior. And saying he lived among the tents, this refers to his generally being a pastoralist. In other words, he took care of animals. He was a normal man, living the shepherding life, residing close to home, while Esau is off wandering as a hunter in the hills and different places. He was one who possessed the sword and thus was casting aside all authority in his life. They lived very different lives, Esau and Jacob, and even their parents had a different affinity one for the other. Their parents' their parents' division over their love for their for these boys shows the further division between Esau and Jacob. Or in Jacob, you know, we see Isaac loved Esau. Why? Because because he loved to eat of his game. He loved when Esau would bring game back. But Rebecca, she loved Jacob, and that's all it says. Her love for her son may be rooted in the divine choice of Jacob from the oracle given to her, the word of God. He, she, they knew. They knew what God's promises were concerning these two. Now to establish the circumstances for the negotiations which follow, we read in verse 29 this. Esau came in from the field. He's exhausted. While Jacob is at the tents cooking stew. Now again, for being an expert hunter, Esau has not done well. He's been out hunting and comes back hungry, exhausted, and without game. So we presume that as he returns empty-handed, he's in this weakened condition. Now we may ask, is this hyperbole? Is, Is his being famished hyperbole? Although it often is read this way, probably this is not hyperbole. Esau is indeed in need of, of, of nourishment. He's, he's very hungry. He's very tired. And this is the very situation which Jacob should not be taking advantage of. And so Esau says to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Now the word that's used uh, in verse 29 for stew is actually the same word we use for lentils. 
So it's, it's probably red lentil stew. And really what Esau is essentially saying is this, quick, give me some of that red stuff. I am famished. So his, his, his response is really, uh, or his, his, what he's saying is actually very rude and, and coarse. But in his mind, it's justified because he's extremely hungry. Give me some of that red stuff. We also see something here of his impulsiveness. He just wants food. He doesn't care how he comes across or what happens. Give me that red food now. Here, too, is the link between his name, Esau, and the red stuff that he wants. And so verse 31, Jacob says this, Sell me your birthright now. Here we have Jacob, the heel, the heel grabber. You know, he's exploiting his brother's dire hunger for his own gain. What a nice brother, huh? His lack of compassion and lack of hospitality stand in stark contrast to that of his, his grandfather, Abraham. You remember Abraham as he ran from here to there serving the, these heavenly guests? And for that matter, his own mother, Rebecca, who served Abraham's servant who had come to her home when he was looking for a wife. Isaac. Both his mother and his grandfather were great servants. Showed great hospitality. But this is not what Jacob does. Jacob instead is driving a hard bargain. If you want food in your weakened state, Esau, then it's going to cost you dearly. You're going to have to give me your birthright. And you're going to have to do it right now. Now, in the ancient world, the firstborn was one who received special honor. In Mosaic law, the firstborn is entitled to a double share or a double portion of the inheritance. Now, what exactly this meant in this particular situation is not really clear. But what is clear is that Jacob is taking advantage of the situation. He's taking advantage of his brother. As far as Esau is concerned... He's on death's door. I mean, what difference does a birthright mean to him? He said, this is why he says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright? Now the rhetorical question justifies the sale of his firstborn status. What do I care about my, first, my, my being firstborn? I'm going to die anyway if you don't give me some of that red stuff. Now, if he was truly this desperate, if, if Esau was literally on death's door, then Jacob's opportunism is absolutely ruthless. Though he is surely hungry and weakened, Esau's probably not on death's door. In this case, I think it seems that he was exaggerating. As horrible as Jacob is treating Esau, it should be pointed out from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16, who calls Esau profane. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says Esau was profane because he sold his birthright for a bite to eat. And so Jacob makes his brother take an oath, swear to me now, he says, And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And the content of Esau's oath is not recorded. Whatever it is, though, he swore to it. 
If Esau is hot-blooded and impulsive, then we can say this about Jacob. Jacob is cold and calculating. Jacob's actions must be measured against what constitutes fair trade. Lentils are common, right? Those are an everyday, uh, you know, thing you can you can uh, acquire. The birth, the family birthright. This is of unmatched value. He had he had his fill of, uh, uh, or I should say, uh, what. what this is this was not a fair deal. This is a violation of God's law, the the law of just balances. Uh, Proverbs twenty says this: unequal weights, unequal measures are both an, alike an abomination to the Lord. What 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 Jacob has done to his brother is abominable. Is this is sinful? But the narrative ends with Jacob giving Esau bread and lentils. He threw in a, some bread while he's at it, right? Yak, no. Throw, throw a loaf of bread in for you. So the deal has been struck. Esau eats, he drinks, and then he just goes about his business. Esau had his fill of delicious food. He hurries off. He's somewhat indifferent to the whole thing. Thus the text notes this. Esau despised his birthright. You know, often the scriptures will simply record events which happen. You know, that you find that a lot in the narrative. There's not necessarily a judgment given. It's just, this, this is just what happened. But here it does give a judgment. Esau does not care. When someone despises something, uh, they will treat it as irrelevant. He saw his birthright as irrelevant. It's of no value. It was held in contempt. Esau despised that which should have belonged to him. In this way, though, Esau was holding the promises of God in contempt. Remember, most undoubtedly he knew about the promises of God. He was holding God's promises in contempt. He was holding God in contempt. But God hates those who would hold his promises in contempt. In fact, this very thing is said of Esau in Malachi 1.3. And the writer of Hebrews states that later, when he desired the inheritance and he desired the blessing, he was rejected, though he sought it with tears. Sad, really. But here Jacob's reprehensible character is brought out as well. Jacob, I mean, he's just a scoundrel, right? Let's be honest about it. And yet he is the son of promise. The most, really, I mean, as as bad as Esau is, Jacob is so cold and calculating, it's, it's like, that is so wicked. And yet, we see God's divine grace, don't we? And his divine grace isn't poured out because of good behavior. It's not that God looked at Jacob and said, well, you know, he's kind of the better of the two, right? No. No. God is not looking for perfect people to save. In fact, it is the grace of God which overcomes human depravity and transforms sinful men into saints and sons of the kingdom. Jacob was a man who was to be transformed 
into being the promised heir of God. Beloved, this ought to provide great hope for every sinner. There is no one who is beyond the hand of God. There is no one who could say, well, you know, but God doesn't know how bad I've been. I've been really bad. No, He does know. And He can save you. No one is so far under the curse of sin that they cannot be rescued by the gracious and merciful hand of our Savior. Jacob was rotten. He was rotten to the core. And yet God showed great favor upon him. God loved Jacob and saved him. At the same time, Esau sadly despised that which by birth should have been his. And by the way, Esau is responsible. God is sovereign over all these things, and yet Esau is responsible for his despising of God. And this was too part of God's sovereign plan. That Jacob may inherit the covenant promises and that the nation may come through him. That the Messiah would come through him and his children after him. And doesn't this really bring us back to where we started? God's divine election, his sovereign choice without regard to men. God always accomplishes His will. God had elected some, has elected some to everlasting life. He chose Jacob and rejected Esau. And He did this before either one of them were born. Before either one of them had done anything good or bad. Why? So that God's purpose of election may continue. What we see over and over again is that God is sovereignly in control of all that takes place. And in particular, we see this in regard to salvation. It is God who saves. It is God who actually does the saving. Well, this ought to be a wonderful comfort to us. This ought to give you great hope. Because as you look at your own life, you understand, I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. This is the reason why our worship is the way it is. We, we start with confessing our sins so we remember the great mercy Christ has given to us. We've been rescued from the pit. We no longer have to despair. We ought to have great hope. We can understand God is just. The wages of sin is death. But... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's mercy, isn't it? Divine election gives us hope that undeserving sinners can be assured that we indeed are children of God, heirs of His covenant promises. Because if there were not divine election, then we could never know if we've done enough. Have I been good enough? Have I believed enough? No, it is the triune God who saves us by the Father's eternal decree, by the Son's accomplishing it at the cross, and by the Holy Spirit applying that redemption to underserving sinners like you and me. You should know that you can trust Christ. For if you are in Him, your future is secure. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. If you are trusting in Him, then you can rejoice even in the midst of trials. 
even as you suffer, you can rejoice knowing that God is doing a work through the difficulties you face. God's sovereign election has deep ramifications that touch us on every part of our life. Particularly in our thankfulness. We can be thankful to God for what He has done for us in Christ. And so I urge you, beloved, trust and rest in Jesus Christ, the Savior. It is God who saves. It is God who comforts. It is God who provides you rest. May the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions, grant us comfort in Him, that we may comfort others, that they too may hope in the Savior, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, oh, how gracious you are. We're so thankful, oh God, for saving us miserable sinners. That you've been pleased to uh, bring us out of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. We thank you for this reminder from your word that even as we look at the, the story of Jacob, one of the great heroes of the faith, one who's in the hall of fame of faith, as it were, and yet we see that he was a great sinner, as were all of them, as are we. We're thankful that if you can save them, you save us as well by faith. Help us, O God, to trust in you, to remind you, to be assured of the hope we have in our Savior Jesus. May this hope be shared with many in this community. That those who do not know this hope, that those who do not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, would repent of their sin, would know him, and be assured that they too can be and are children of God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.